This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. This is Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the coevolution of architecture and technology. In this episode, I welcome Matt Wash. Matt is the principal digital consultant at Autonomation and Bimbeats. He has 25 years' experience in the AEC industry, combining his skills as an engineer with his experience as a technician. Matt is keen to maximize the benefits of the BIM process and implement lean construction principles. Matt completed his postgraduate certification in building information modeling and integrated design in 2013 with the University of Salford. Matt is a regular speaker at the Autodesk University and RTC slash built conferences and won the top rated speaker at Built Asia in 2017 and more recently, won a top-rated class award at Autodesk University in 2021. Matt had been a longtime follower of the Bad Monkeys. After implementing BIM Beats at a large Australian architectural practice, he jumped at the chance to work with Adam Sheather and Conrad Soban. He has always been passionate about continuous improvement and using data insights to apply lean manufacturing principles within the AEC industry. And after those 25 years of working on large-scale projects as an engineer and technician, Matt has firsthand experience of the challenges digital transformation brings. He's excited by the opportunity BIMBeats can offer to improve the quality of models and profitability of companies, but more importantly, the wellness of people. In this episode, we discuss how architecture and engineering firms are, or in many cases are not, quantifying inefficient workflows and what that means to their businesses not just for the bottom line, but also for the quality of the staff experience, the real and potential benefits of data analysis on projects, and the skills, tools, workflows, and behaviors used to deliver them, the massive amount of duplication of work in the industry, and what can be done about removing the waste in order to make room to add value back into the system, change management in regard to technology within firms, the health of the business and the real impact it has on the potential to improve people's lives who are doing the work, and more. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Matt Wash. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Great to see you again. Thanks, Evan. Thanks for having me. And um, obviously, it was great to catch up a couple of months ago in person in LA. Um, It was kind of interesting for me in that I've been listening to the podcast for probably a couple of years now. All of the guests that you have on are kind of people I respect in the industry. And and I think it wasn't until maybe 10 or 15 minutes into our conversation, I realized it was you. (laughs) So I think we were were talking about Bim Beats. We were talking about all of these great things. And then I'm like, oh, you're Evan Troxell. Wow, I didn't, I didn't even know. And then we obviously unpacked the fact that you interviewed Conrad before and obviously a lot of the people that you know are people I know. Um, so yeah, no, it was great to finally catch up in person and obviously to organize this. So thanks for having me. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation. You guys have done a lot since Conrad and I talked, and uh, I'll put a link to our conversation in the show notes. One one piece of feedback, I think it was like right after Conrad's appearance on the episode was, it'd be cool if you inter- introduced who these people are, because he was like, before I actually started doing introductions, and we just get right into the conversation. <laughs> and so uh, you just learn about the guests by listening to the show. But uh I have since started doing uh, actual proper introductions before before the show starts. So you'll you'll get the the honor of of having that something that Conrad doesn't. Thank so, you. Well, that, that's good. Yeah. I'll be able to hold that above him and say I had it and you did. <laughs> right. So so let's do a little bit of uh, history on BIM Beats, how BIM Beats got to be what it is now, and why. I, you know, I'm always interested in the why more than the what. So. What, where where are you coming from as well in that story? All right. Well, let, let me let me start with an introduction into kind of my background and how I've ended up at BIMBEATS. So I've been in the industry for about 25 years now, uh, and I started out as a structural craftsman for Arup in London. And pretty quickly after joining Arup, I was just amazed at the inefficiency that goes on in the delivery of a building. And like I, I really respected Arup's thoughts around this holistic architecture and total architecture around... <laughs> You shouldn't work in silos that this is all about collaboration. Um, but contracts didn't really support that. Contracts were very adversarial. And it's like, this is a great idea, but it doesn't really work out like that in reality. But the biggest problem I had that was closest to me was just this idea that an engineer designs a building and analyzes a building in a piece of software and then prints out markups that then I, du- I duplicate and recreate this information that already exists in one place. And, and I just thought, well, this is this is crazy. The technology must allow me to move this information. It's just geometry and data. Why can't I move that from one platform to another to communicate how we built this thing? So I, I decided that I wanted to become an engineer because I thought, well, I don't have a career as a draftee uh, for the rest of my life. So I, bec- I trained for about seven years to become a, a civil engineer and became chartered. And then when I moved into the role of the engineer, I just ended up doing exactly what the engineer did and started marking things up for the draftees. And I'm like, well, this this isn't really what I wanted to do. <laughs> you became who you didn't want. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm like, it I happens. just shifted. I just shifted from one role to the other rather than removing this waste. So I said to my boss, I said, look, I, I've got both skill sets now. How about I design and document the buildings rather than you know this workflow of an engineer to a technician? And my boss is like, that's kind of like how an architect works, I guess. You know, there isn't really this divide between an architect and an architectural technician. Yes, there are people that do that work, but a lot of the work is done by the same person. So I started doing it and it, it, it worked out pretty effectively. Um, that, you know, there wasn't this waste of me having to create markups. So I decided to kind of move more into the design technology side of things to say, how about we re-educate people about the different workflows and retrain people to have this type of dual skill set rather than passing this information backwards and forwards. And this would have been in around the early 2000s and, and industry just wasn't really ready for it or businesses weren't ready to kind of embrace this change because they wanted to work in this way they were very comfortable working with. So the, so by the business, you actually mean the people? The Yeah, so it was a people problem, right? It, it wasn't a technology or process problem. It was just around embracing this change. And they were happy for me to do it. And I was like, yeah, but can you see the benefits of this? And if we scale this, how this could work. But my role is now not going to be an engineer or a technician. This is going to be like a design technology role where these roles just never existed. You were a technician, you were an engineer, and you progressed up and you became an associate. And there was this very defined career path. 
So I had an opportunity to move to Australia in 2007 with Arup um, to work on a large convention center, again, where I could do the engineering and the documentation. And you picked and up this th- accent in just that amount of time? Ah, uh, so I've been there for what fifteen years now. So I, 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 I'm from Essex in in uh, in England, and if any of your listeners are familiar with the Essex accent, my Essex accent has gone, um, and now I probably have a very bogan Queensland accent. But that's amazing. Um, so, but, but anyway, so I, I moved to Australia, and then I started working with um, quite a renowned architect in in Australia called Cox Rayner, and Cox did a lot of convention centres and a lot of stadiums and the type of projects that Arab were winning. And then when I started working with them, they were like, wow, you, you want to share your models with us? And I'm like, yeah, if I'm going to be setting out the structural steelwork for this project, you might as well just link my model in and we'll start, we'll start properly collaborating. And it just really scared people because it's like, oh, yeah, but you know, now we're relying on the set out of our model and we're sharing that model. And I'm like, but let's embrace this. This is, this is what we should be doing. So anyway, so um, in 2013, I decided to do a master's degree in building information modeling. Um, just to support a lot of the things that I was finding in the industry, just to to support that with the educational piece. And the most insightful thing that I found doing that was learning how Toyota use lean manufacturing. And I was just like, okay, this is great. Like, obviously, in manufacturing, it's a lot easier. All the stakeholders are on board from day one, and to be able to to implement that lean workflow, it's a lot easier. Like, at, in our industry, it's challenging because these stakeholders come on at different different stages. There's yeah, but there's the like idea, a, a like mindedness or a like purpose to to everybody who's at the table from the, the beginning. The common goal is there right. from the beginning, and we don't have that. Right? So that that I think is our biggest challenge. But this idea of removing waste and adding value at every step of the process, I just that's that's common. We sh- we should at least try and achieve that. So again, I went back to Arup and kind of said, look, I, I really think we need to build a little team around this to just look at all of the inefficiencies in the way that we're delivering projects and focus on removing this waste and adding value. And they said, that's great. You do that on your projects where you're the engineer and where you're the technician. And it's like, this is a full-time role. Like I can't do that as well as what I'm doing to deliver these projects. So I started doing it in my own time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm starting developing these workflows in my own time. And this kind of aligns to the article that Paul Wintour released this week, which is um, something along the lines of unused and, in, and incomplete, where you have these individuals who are super passionate about developing these tools and these workflows. But because it's almost a hobby and it's not something you're accountable for in your role, it either gets developed on the project you're working on and it just sits there, or it sits within my mind and it just moves between the projects that I work on. But it just never really gets rolled out and it's scaled as, as, as it should be to get the full benefit of those tools. Because of behavior change is hard. It's probably the hardest thing, right? And, and I, one of the, I, just for a small detour here, I, I feel like, or right, let's just stay on that thread for a moment. It, it seems like, I mean, this is my experience as well. You have a, a small group of passionate people who are kind of overhead, right? They're supporting the rest of the company in these roles. And they're showing this stuff off and everyone's like, wow, that looks amazing, but I'm not going to do that. We see that all the time. And that to me is when it's obvious that leadership is not on board either, even if the, the lip service is there to say, yeah, this is amazing. Yes, our business needs to go this direction. And there's a bit of a buy-in on the vision side of things, but there's not any support and because the people who are in the overhead positions don't have any teeth in the conversation or the supervision of the people who actually need to be doing the work there's a total breakdown 
right? That that I think is what happens time and time again inside uh, yeah, the industry. I, I totally agree. And and I think for me, because I'd been at the organization for so long, I was still the drafting. You're still you're, you're the draftsman. You're not someone that's coming in for process improvement. You're not here for organizational change. You're not here to manage culture. And it's like, no, I wasn't originally. But let's look at the evolution of my career and let's look at the value that I could add and how that's changed, but how, how, how different this is to the way that this organization has ever run before. And I think that's the biggest challenge. And like you say, there's possibly the lip service around, no, you continue doing what you're doing. We really support what you're doing as long as you do it in your own time and you get your project out the door. <laughs> and let us talk about it in our marketing, right? Like, like it's, it's interesting to see that side of it too, where it's like, look how high tech we are. We're doing all these things. And it's really like one person, right? Absolutely. <laughs> a small look, team. And, yeah. and again, like this, this isn't unique to Arab. Every organization I talk to, and when we get into understanding how Pimbeats is capturing this data, it's the same in every organization. You have this pockets of brilliance, pockets of innovation, but it is just that, and it and it doesn't get scaled. So anyway, when I when I realised that um, that was my passion, I wanted to do that full time. I was working with another architect in in Australia called BVN, and BVN said, "Hey, why don't you come and join us? We'll give you a full time position, just looking at all of our processes and the way we're delivering jobs, and you come in and do this waste piece and this value piece, and that will be your full time role." And I'm like, wow, this is huge for me. I've just gone from being a structural technician to a structural engineer, focusing on structures. And straight away, an architectural practice has recognized that that's something that would be of value to them. And after 20 years of me doing this in structures, they're willing to take a punt on me to do this full time within an organization as a designated role. With obvious leadership buy-in, at least. With obvious leadership buy-in. And they had a design tech. This, so this was back in 2017, but the, the design technology team at BVN had been established for quite a long time. And when I joined in 2017, that's when I joined and Paul Wintour was there. So ironically, I, 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 and I knew about Paul. Paul probably knew a little bit about me, but then we started to be able to work together on, on some stuff. So one of the first things that um, I did when I joined BVN was try to understand why Revit was crashing so often. Revit was just crashing all the time and, and we just couldn't understand what was happening. So I started talking to, to Adam Sheether, who was in Brisbane and was a friend of mine. And he said, oh, well, we're developing this tool called BIM Beats. And what BIM Beats is able to do is capture in real time what the computer's doing, what the user's doing, and the health of the model all at the same time in real time. And I'm like, you're kidding me, right? And he's like, no, 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 right what we're doing here is capturing everything that could contribute to that crash. We're capturing it in real time. So you will have every metric you need to understand why that crash is happening. And I said, well, right now I'm analyzing journal files manually. It's so hard. And this is happening maybe kind of 10, 15 times a week. My entire week is just taken up of just trying to get to the bottom of these crashes. So we implemented BIM Beats and pretty quickly, yeah, we were able to find trends around, was it the the health of the model was it what the user was doing or was it the infrastructure that it was sitting on and we didn't we didn't get to the bottom of every crash obviously but we did start establishing some trends around yeah where the, the internet connection or the connection for where the people were, were coming into and oh yeah okay this seems to be a common trend let's have a look at that and oh this this model's got x amount of warnings in it it's got so many link files it's got 10 people working in it and we, yeah so we started building all of these trends but to start with, the dashboards that we pulled together were pretty hacky. Like they were pretty, pretty, pretty rubbish to start with. 
And, and I guess this probably was at the same time that you might have interviewed Conrad around how Bim Beats was just getting off, off the ground. But now after two years of pulling that data together, and after I'd done this with BVN for about a year, I then got the opportunity to do it full-time with Bim Beats and Adam and Conrad said, let come jump on board. We'll, we'll do this across all organizations because I'd probably got the best level of understanding of how Bim Beats was used within an organization because I was doing that full-time. But then when I started um, with Bim Beats full-time just over a year ago, and I started looking at all of the other companies' data, we started benchmarking what good practice really was and the impact of good practice. And I think everybody that uses Revit, like particularly BIM managers will know, okay, you don't open the entire model, you only open up selected work sets. You need to regularly compact your central file. You don't open sheets, you open views. All of these things that a BIM manager would know, I started to realize that in an organization, particularly architectural practices, that isn't the norm. Like it's the norm with people that know how to use the tool. Yeah, that's a small number of people. But it's a very small number. Exactly. So the other day I was chatting to a potential client and I said, do you guys know the impact of opening the entire model with all of the work sets, all of the links, and how that affects your opening and synchronization times? And they're like, oh, look, we don't know the actual numbers, but we always tell everybody, make sure you only open up the work sets you need, only link in the models you need to link in, et cetera. And we like every week we have this discussion with our team and we make sure that that's the case. And I'm, so, I'm like, that's great. That's really good that you do support what we're trying to do here. So let's put you in BIM Beats and let's, we can measure the impact of that so that you can show just how much you know, benefit you get from doing that. And we put them in BIM Beats and 65, 70% of the time, their architects open the entire model with all of the work sets open with all the links. Yeah, what's easiest? And it's it's, <laughs> it's like, all there. Hit, yeah, and it's like, oh, I just thought you hit the open button. I didn't even realize there was a specify work sets button or open last, whatever it might be. And it's like, it's great that you have these systems and processes in place, but it's anecdotal evidence that that's happening. Whereas BIM Beats kind of removes any of this bias around, oh, no, no, that's definitely what we do within our organization. We always make sure we only open up selected work sets because BIM Beats captures what the user's doing. And if somebody complains, ah, oh, the model's taking 20 minutes to open, ah, oh, this model's so slow, or the infrastructure that this is terrible, like my computer's rubbish. And then you go, well, you do realize that you have 60 work sets and 20 link models, and you're opening all of those work sets with all of those link models. Whereas your colleague here, who takes five minutes to get into the model, opens selected work sets and goes in and only opens the parts that they need to do to do their job. And it's it was something for me where I'm like, I can't believe that when you scale this and look at an entire organization, the amount of inefficiency and wasted time of very, very simple things that a BIM manager would know or an experienced Revit user would know, that that's just not common. It's not common, particularly with architects, um, but they don't know these things. Yeah. And it's not their fault. I, I mean, in, in many cases, it's not their fault. And training is difficult. Um, but I think one of the most interesting things about analytics like you're talking about and why people one of the very first reasons is to look for training opportunities like these it's not to slap people on the hand it's absolutely because again it's not typically it's not their fault and because you or the bim manager has no way to go in and remove the ui that they don't want people to use and and there's five ways to do almost everything in these pieces of software 
then what is a user actually supposed to do with that, right? Like the open buttons are right there. And it, what is, I, I don't even look at what those other things are in the dialogue box because this is the way I've always done it. And so this is the battle that the BIM managers are kind of up against all the time. Oh, absolutely. And and just, I want to jump on this point straight away that BIM Beats is not a tool to check up on people to find out people who are doing bad stuff to get rid of bad people. The intent of BIM Beats is exactly what you've just described in that I, I, from our studies, I reckon 95% of the time it's because no one's been shown that there is a better way of doing that thing, that there are five ways of doing it and how does someone know what the best way is unless that's something they're particularly passionate about. And it is it is the BIM managers pretty much that are, are those passionate people that would know, oh, there's five ways, this is the best way, oh, I know that's the best way. But if we take if we take in-place families as an example, how does an interior designer who does a lot of bespoke casework know that if I build this one bench that's going in the foyer of this commercial tower and then, oh, well, maybe it's on every level of that commercial tower because it's in the reception of every level of every tenant and I'll just copy that 50 times because it's 50 levels, that they're, they're highly unlikely to know the impact that that's having on the project and, and there's no reason that they should. But BIM Beats can now capture, okay, well, we know who created those in-place families. We know how often that's been copied around. And now we know the impact on the file size, the opening time, the synchronization time, how often that's going to crash. And the BIM manager on that project can then look at that data and then say, okay, let's run a training session with those people and explain the benefits of doing these things differently. And then the benefit of that is that in a month's time, if that user's still doing the same thing, you can say, well, okay, does that training mechanism work with that person? Or is it better that they sit alongside someone on that project who does know how to build content? and that they're learning on the job. So all of the different ways of learning can be measured using BIM Beats. And it's not to say that one method's better than another, but you can look at it with an, an individual in mind to say, well, okay, that doesn't work with this individual, whereas this method might do, because we can track how many times they were building in-place families before the training, and then how many times they were building in-place families after the training. And, ah, oh, now they're building loadable families, and we can see that that, that training has worked. But equally, if it hasn't, then it's like, well, let's revisit why it didn't work and can we find a better method for, for that, that group of people. And it's the same with all of the add-ins. So with any Revit add-in, and a lot of companies obviously have their own add-ins, but understanding the use of those add-ins, you can pair the super user who's using all of those tools with someone who doesn't use the tools. But if they're doing a similar role and you can put them on a project together, that on-the-job training of the super user with the novice to transfer those skills seems to work pretty well. And, and an example, and I'll give a shout out to Sash from ID8. So a lot of one of our clients has got ID8 suite and they noticed that they weren't using it as much as they wanted to. So they got Sash in to do some lunchtime sessions and they could see the spike after the session of how many people started using the tools and then when it dropped off again, when they needed to re, re, um, go back to that training. But having that transparency around how those tools were being used and the effectiveness of the training was just a huge, huge benefit that BIMBeats was bringing because BIMBeats could obviously track which features were being used in which tool by which user. And then again, if internal um, or if you're building internal tools and you've got a whole suite of tools that obviously automate manual tasks and they're not being used, again, you can start using BIMBeats to understand who's doing the manual um, tasks versus the, the tools that have been developed in-house. And again, I guess this comes back to Paul's point around 
these in-house tools that are being developed and only being used by a certain portion of, of, the, of the practice. That's absolutely what we're finding with BIMBeats to start with when we go in. And we're like, yeah, you're building these tools, but they're only really being used by a very small percentage of people. But now we have BIMBeats to track that and a way of measuring it and a way of looking at how we can train people. You'll see the uptake, but it does rely on someone internally leading that. And I think this, this is probably comes back to Paul's point is that it's not the individual that's building the tool. It's not the person on the project that's got to get those drawings out the door at the end. You, you need somebody in there to have a strategy to make sure that that digital transformation that, you're, that you say is happening within your business is actually happening across the entire business and not just in these little pockets. I want to talk more about the uh, the 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 software suite or the entire workflow. That it's not just Revit, right? It's and it's not just the add-ins for Revit. And I know I know you guys go there, so we'll get to that in a minute. But I think one of the things that is really interesting about the role of the people who are the ones who are responsible for that digital transformation that you just talked about can't just be a BIM manager slash nerd, right? It, it has to be someone with communication skills and empathy for the users. Because if, if that person is really great at analyzing that, but has no way to bridge the gap to the actual people so that the behavior change can happen, that is a huge piece of the puzzle that cannot be, when, when hiring for those roles, that is something you absolutely have to look for in the company or else it, it's, it's going to stop there, right? Like if people don't want to hear from somebody that, that is constantly knocking on their door, telling them they're doing it wrong, they're not going to hear them, period. Like the emails will go into the trash and that person, as soon as they walk away, they'll be like, thank God that person's not here anymore to tell me that I'm doing it wrong, right? Because it does take a certain approach and it does take that empathy that I was mentioning a minute ago, because if, if that isn't there, it's, it's a, it's a oh. crap show. Absolutely. I, t- I totally agree with you. And and the company that um, I work for now, which is part of the Bad Monkeys group, is called Autonomation. And Autonomation means automating with a human touch. And it's like you can't do one without the other. You, automation doesn't happen without that part that you've just described with empathy. And let a computer do what a computer's good at doing, which is repetitive tasks, doing that same thing over and over and over again. But you're never going to get a computer to do that communication piece that change management piece that getting people's buy-in piece and and particularly around an example that came up with bin beats the other week so what we're finding with post-covid is that people are working far longer hours than they ever were before covid and we, we could have a whole separate session on this because it's fascinating that there are a few people that are using the opportunity to work from home and get their time back and spend the commute doing things with their family and that that's awesome it's a very, very small portion of the overall workforce that's doing that. And what we're finding in BIMBeats is that people are working longer hours and longer throughout the day. So they might start earlier and finish later. They might have a few breaks in between, but the overall duration that they're working now is far longer. So what we tried to do with one of our clients was identify people that were regularly doing long hours, find out the tasks they were doing, identify the tasks that could be automated and have that conversation. 
But that conversation piece is really difficult or it can be really difficult. So the example that we found was... Because it's kind of a privacy slash surveillance kind of a feel. When when somebody sees you coming and you're like, well, how how much have you been interrogating my work? I could see that, that side of it. And the natural reaction is to be defensive around it and mm-hmm. feel like you're being criticized. So the example that I'm going to share is that this, this architect always opened the sheet rather than the view that they were working on. And they were doing room layout sheets. So the room layout sheet had got all of the schedules, a 3D view, a plan view, a ceiling, a section, an elevation. So there were like eight views on these sheets. And they were going in and modifying one of the views on these sheets. And that was what they did the entire week. And I think it was like four hours of their week was spent just waiting for those sheets to open. Not doing anything on the sheet, but waiting for the sheet to open. So I spoke to the BIM manager on that project and said, look, I think we can identify how we can help this person out. Like it just explain to them the benefit of just going into the view bar in the sheet and you should really only go into the sheet if you're going to go and issue it and you're doing a kind of final check. But we need to be very careful about having that conversation because they're going to straight away go, I want to see the entire sheet and that's why I'm doing it. And it's like we need to be empathetic to that to say, look, I know that you're used to that and maybe in CAD that's the way you worked or I understand as an architect you want to see the entire drawing and I I totally get that. But let me just explain, like I I can show you how long it takes to open the view versus the sheet and that will give you four hours of your week back. But And it was like once they'd got the data on the how that was going to improve their life, they kind of got it. But that conversation, which was you know, a relatively simple one still had to be handled very, very sensitively because it's like you've got to still understand why they're doing it that way and go in with, a, I, know, I understand why you're doing what you're doing, but let me just give you another scenario of how you can get some time back if you do this differently. I think there's it, so many examples like that because you could, I can think of several ways you could solve for that, right? You can, does that person need another monitor so that they can have a PDF up to see the whole sheet, for instance, right? And then have, Revit running on this one monitor, opening the separate views. There's there's lots of ways to solve that, but but to your point, why are they doing it that way? And if the answer is deeper than well, that's the way that I've always done it, then there's an opportunity to to design a solution to that problem, right? I think that that's that's the kind of conversation that we're talking about. Yeah, and, and to your point, like the solution to that is coming from a human. The human is coming up with the idea of how you solve that problem and the empathy and delivery of that message because let's just say we could create a pop-up that comes up on that person's machine to say right you've just opened 10 sheets today and it's taken you four hours don't do that open the view it's like that's not the way right. we want to approach this you pop-up. just like, totally slapped my hand and stepped it, on my toes <laughs> exactly and and you could say oh well that's not wasted the time of the human and t- human time is is money and that's you know 10 minutes, that 10 minute conversation, we don't need to have that 10 minute conversation because we can launch a pop up on someone's screen. But it's like, that's where you go, no, no, that's where the automation routine is not the solution. The solution is the human interaction. But yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of examples around that compacting central files. It's like, I think the the last company we investigated, 85% of the files hadn't been compacted in the last six months. And it's like, well, now we have the metrics on understanding the opening times and synchronization times when the file size comes down. So we can now go back to a business and say, right, if you have a remote machine that you set up and you compact your central files overnight, you will save your business X amount of hours a year 
X amount of hours is X amount of dollars, and that's the work a computer is doing and a human is not. So that's a really easy way of doing the automation without needing the human touch because it's like that is the, when you go in and you hit compact central file and you're doing that manually and you're waiting until the end of the day to do it, that is one task that you just go, you don't need to do that. We just can set that up and separate. So there's, there's some things that you don't need that empathetic touch to and, and there's, there's a lot of those as well. But it comes back to yeah, the balance of automation um, and, and the human and letting a computer do what a computer is good at and, and bringing the human in to do that sensitive communication piece. But you're absolutely right. That isn't the role of a BIM manager. That isn't the role of a technical person. It could Depends be. Depends on the person, right? But but it's an additional skill that mm-hmm. isn't you're good at Revit. Right. And, you know, absolutely. The, the, three of us, the three of us, Conrad, Adam, and I, I, I would say I'm probably the most empathetic. Conrad would probably agree he's the least empathetic but he's the most technical person that we have and like there's no way like there's nothing he doesn't know technically but the delivery of that message sometimes often might be better coming from me than it is from conrad but again it's like it's it's knowing those skill sets and using those skill sets correctly within the business and making sure that the delivery of the message is is done in the right way but having the right technical skill behind it as well because there's no one better in the business than conrad and, and adam technically um, and I guess I come in as the empathetic year, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I wanted to make sure we didn't forget about is this idea when you left the firm that you were at and kind of the trajectory that you were on to work in Bimbeats at Bimbeats. The the idea that that I or the the line that I use is you went from working in the business to working on the business or in the industry to on the industry. And now you have this kind of wider perspective and a, and a view into many different firms. And I'm just wondering how that's kind of changed you personally to your awareness of, of the problems that you're seeing and the effects of positive change at that scale or at that, you know, with, with that perspective that you have and how you're able to uh, affect positive change for the profession? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I guess up until the point where I joined BIMBEATS, I could only bring in the perspective of the organizations that I'd worked for, which was like a large engineering company and a large architectural practice. And when I then started working with, let's just say a dozen clients on a regular basis, the one thing that I found was the success of BIMBEATS and the success of any, I guess, technological change or digital transformation is it still it comes back to this. Is there company buy-in to achieve what we're trying to achieve here from an organizational perspective? Because this isn't this isn't about bringing, like you've just said, it isn't about bringing someone in technically to do the analytics, to do the insights. It's all around the success of the actioning of those insights. And there are some organizations that I spend a lot of, like I get paid consulting time to go in and do the analytics. And I will, I will go back to an organization, for example, and say, look, I've analyzed the way that you're delivering projects in BIM 360 and comparing that to your network. You have a significant deficit in the way that you deliver projects in BIM 360 from opening and syncing. And like in some cases, that can be twice as long to open a file and sync a file compared to your network with similar files, similar projects. If I put them like by like, side one another, you guys need to go in and have a look at why BIM 360 is not performing for your organization. Then I'll come back a week later and say, how did that conversation go? 
and they'll be like, oh, yeah, well, we don't really talk to the IT guys and the IT guys don't really like us. The silos and the politics and can, the yeah, red can tape. We, can, we move yeah. on, can we move on to the next thing? Right. And I'll be like, well, okay, look, you have this individual within the business who's doing all of these really smart things, like he's compacting the central file on a remote machine. When he does his PDFing to issue on a Friday, he does that on a Thursday night. So the PM's got his PDFs ready in the morning on a, on a Friday. I'm like, this guy's gold. Like, he is our perfect Bimbeats user. And they're like, oh, yeah, but no one likes talking to him either. Like, he's, like he's really hard to get on with. And it's like, well, all I can do is get you to a point where I'm giving you the insights. That action part, if you don't have the culture and the support to follow that through, then I wouldn't say it's a waste of time, but you're not reaping the benefits that you should. Whereas I do exactly the same thing with another organization and their culture is just all around. If we find a better way of doing things, we share that with everybody. We encourage people to find better ways of doing that thing. But until there is a better way of doing that thing, you will do it that one way that we tell you is the best way to do it. And it's like, we're not telling you you can't find better ways of doing things. But what we're saying is if we're using BIMBEATS to analyze the best way to do this thing and we found out the best way and we have quantifiable metrics to do it, we support as an entire organization, that's the way you do it. That's the standard. And every week we have a session where we run through, right, this is the way we do this thing. This is the way we do that thing. This is the way we do this thing. And we welcome anybody to open, open up the floor for comments to say, oh, I think we could do this a better way. And then we run it in BIMBEATS. We go, well, you... You spend the next week or however long you need to do to test that method and then we'll check in Bim Beats. Did it did it was it better than the last way? So this continuous improvement culture is is amazing. And that that business, I'll call them out, ADG engineers in Australia went from identifying all of the things that they thought were being inefficient in their business. So they do a lot of reinforcement and post-tensioning. And they realized using BIMBEATS that they were wasting so much time moving documentation or moving information from analysis to documentation with reinforcement and post-tensioning. So they brought in the software developer to write a routine to move the information backwards and forwards. They built it as a Dynamo script and then they added it as a C-sharp plugin. And now every time they move information between those two platforms, they use that plugin and BIMBEATS can track how often they do that now compared to how long that task used to be manually. So they've got a record of exactly how much money they spent on developing the tool. and They how much actually know the ROI on that tool. Exactly. And they've okay. gone from, uh, well, their, their suite of tools that they've developed for Revit, as an example, and, and Dynamo, like you just see the entire company uses them. There isn't like the super user and the novice because they've got this culture of continuous improvement and learning that it is across the entire business. Now, I... I it is extremely rare. We don't have that many clients that have that made that much difference. But BIMBEATS shows, right? They, I can go back a year ago and show how often those tasks are being carried out manually compared to how they're being carried out through that automated routine now. And the data's there. It speaks for itself. So it's not, it's not anecdotal evidence. It's not marketing spin. This is, well, this is business as usual now within that organization. It's not just an individual doing those things. It is the entire business. But it relies on that culture. It relies on that company supporting that and having a team of people that are literally making sure that that digital transformation program is actually doing what it's supposed to do. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. 
You've already heard a lot about Avail as a longtime sponsor of the show, but wait, this is a new message for you, distinguished listener of the Troxel podcast. We can't talk about Avail's latest desktop release without talking dynamic paths. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, of course you do. Dynamic paths allow BIM managers to store data in BIM 360, OneDrive, or any other cloud solution. In the latest version of Avail, they expand on location agnostic, making content easier and faster to find for the user. Imagine not having to worry if the content is on a local network drive or in the gazillion cloud storage locations. How is this even possible? Pure magic. It's the stuff of unicorns and rainbows, my friends. Let's keep this just between you and me. Here's some of the details. Following on the promise of being content agnostic, Avail now makes location complexity a thing of the past. Content is more than Revit. It ranges from Rhino to AutoCAD to Office documents. Well, this is next level. We're talking network locations. Have you ever seen one location where all the project content lives? Snap out of it. Of course you haven't. Content can live anywhere from the local network to BIM 360 to OneDrive to any other cloud location. Why does this matter? Well, good thing there are no dumb questions, because the answer is that it frees up users to concentrate on design, which pays the bills, and getting content into a project, not managing technical issues around network drives and paths. Let's face it, they aren't that good at that anyway. Avail's mission is to make finding content simpler and easier. Like our favorite architect Louis Kahn once asked, Data, where do you want to live? I don't think he really asked that question, but Avail allows teams to, so let's just roll with it. And hold the phone. For those of you who know what this means, Avail also supports federated data requirements. Data can live where it needs and must live, allowing users secure and simple access to it. So what's the takeaway? What's the big picture here? Settle down. I have it right here. Avail is a platform that connects all types of data from all types of locations hiding complexity. Try it today. Go to getavail.com to learn more. And now let's get back to our conversation. You talked about two different examples. One talks about digital transformation. One actually does digital transformation because they see the benefits of it. And, and BIMBeats is there to provide the data, the the analysis of what's going on and then it is up to them to act upon it right and that a lot it's hard it isn't easy in an organization many to do that but if you're serious about digital transformation you have to have that information this is the difference between ignorance right not knowing if you have bim beats you have the information you can no longer ignore it but you can well, I guess what I was about to say was then there's ignorance, right? Which is we have we have the data, but we are going to ignore it because I don't like that person. There's politics. It's difficult. It's not my job. There's finger pointing. There's that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you know that that for me that that's hugely frustrating because we've given a tool to a business that is enabling them to become so much more efficient. And you know I can you know say if you do this thing and you spend let's just say you spend a day trying to analyze this thing, you could save your business a thousand hours a year. But you, that conversation and that cultural piece is not in place, and it's not going to happen. And for me, knowing that that is an opportunity and it doesn't come to fruition is is a huge frustration for me. 
because you know I don't, I don't want Bim Beats to be seen as a product that's not doing what it claims to do. And potentially within that organization, it could go to a leadership, the, the C-suite, and the C-suite say, well, what are we buying this piece of software for? What is it doing for us? And you know, if we could implement these changes, it would be quite easy to prove the ROI. But if, it, if you can't, then the tool probably isn't right for you because there's no point having the tool and finding out all these insights if you're not going to actually. Yeah, help me help you, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I, I guess we, and I, I obviously use Revit as an example most of the time because that's most of the, the businesses that we um, deal with use Revit. But we track what's happening in AutoCAD. We track what's happening in Rhino and Grasshopper. And one of the, I guess, one of the more recent insights has been the switch to Grasshopper and, and Rhino for conceptual modeling and seeing that uptake and being able to measure that uptake and measure the differences and, and again, how we move that information backwards and forwards. Um, so that's been probably one of the key insights in the last year is just this huge switch to organizations getting into Rhino and Grasshopper um, in early stages and then interoperability. So interoperability is a huge passion of mine. So tools like Speckle and where you can start moving this data backwards and forwards, I think, you know, in terms of the industry moving forward, I think that's going to be a huge game changer. Going I know in, in when I was running digital practice at HMC, it was, we were, me- we were doing that switch from SketchUp to Rhino um, for various reasons. And I, I know a lot of people still hate me for that. There's, there were the business benefits to switching to Rhino in, in our case. It's not, not that I'm saying it's for everyone, but it was for our case. And the measurement of usage of a particular tool because you can't just well you could just cut one off and say look at here's the new one we've provided all the training you have to use it but that's usually not how it works right there's kind of this winding down of one while the ramp up of the other one is happening at the same time and if you can actually measure the usage like like when revit first came around there was on every single project like in 2008, 2009, there was a point at which that project got exported to AutoCAD and finished in AutoCAD, right? <laughs> that happened all the time. And and now, I mean, that's that's no different when you're switching from one platform to another to accomplish a certain set of tasks, right? There's at some point, someone is so fed up, it's taking that because there is a learning curve. Like, again, we have to have empathy for what <laughs> we're asking people to do here. There is a learning curve. And if, if, the deadline and the person's knowledge doesn't work with the this shift in the comp- in the business they're going to just do that because they are going to take the path of least resistance right and so they're going to go back to the thing they're comfortable with and deliver it in a fraction of the time that it would have taken them blood sweat and tears to do it in the new package granted the next time if they would have stuck with it it would have gone faster right and so there's there's a trade off that they are making there but a lot of times People aren't looking beyond the deadline of the current week or the current day to make those decisions. Yeah, there's there's a few points that I want to add to there. Um, one is a, an example that I had the other week where I knew that a user was doing something that, let's just say it took 10 hours to complete that task. And I knew that with an automated routine and doing it slightly different, it was going to take four hours. And I had this conversation with this individual and I totally agreed with the response. The response back was, Yes, it's going to take me 10 hours, but I know it will take me 10 hours. And I know that I can plan 10 hours to get that thing done. And by the end of the day, it's going to get done. With your method that is four hours, that isn't four hours the first time I do it. 
it's four hours once I've got it as a habit and once I know how to do it. But the first few times, it's probably going to be 10, 15 hours. And I don't know. And that uncertainty scares me. Whereas my 10 hours that I know that after that. Totally certain done, about that 10 hours. I right. know it's going to be 10 hours. Like if yeah. I do that thing a hundred times, then yes, I'm probably going to go, I want to do it your way. If I'm going to do it today and I don't think I'm going to do it again for six months, I'm going to do my 10 hours. And I'm like, I totally, totally get it. There's like, I'm not going to do this again for three years. Right. And, and there's no way I'm going to remember it. So it's going to take me more time to learn how to do it now and then i gotta relearn it again later whereas this other thing is muscle memory and i can just do it absolutely and it's the same with doing any any dynamo routine like if you're going to script anything the very first time you script it is going to take i reckon three times longer than what it would do that manual process the very first time right but when you run that 10 times and you're running it for the 10th time and you're going comparing it to the 10th time you've done it manually there's no comparison but And again, this probably comes back to one of Paul's points is that who pays for that initial investment in the innovation to do it the first time? Typically, it's the project, right? The project is going to cop it and the project manager is going to go, yeah, I love this idea, but why does my project have to suffer for that the very first time you develop this? Because I know I know that his project's going to benefit when you've done it five <laughs> times, but so competitive, this is coming we? out of my budget. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's the wrong approach and that stifles innovation. So, but it's it's the way that a typical PM looks at a project because it's like, well, hold on, I'm getting analyzed based on how I delivered this project. I'm not getting based analyzed based on the efficiency of this on the next ten projects. Right. Yeah. We we did uh, we implemented a system because we heard that a lot too, which was out, the overhead digital practice took on those hours. It came, it went to us and every practice, every market segment that was under the company umbrella paid into that. So we were spreading it out that way so that people couldn't complain with that particular point. <laughs> they found other ones, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's, I mean, that is, that's a good solution to that problem is that if everybody puts in 5% of their budget to innovation and the right project comes around, you don't build the tool prior to the project. You build it with the project and you might even build it in parallel to the traditional method because you don't, okay, if it fails and sometimes it does fail. You don't want to be in a position where, well, I can't actually deliver this project anymore because we tried to do it a different way and it failed. But that's like for me, as long as you fail and you learn from what, why it failed and don't do it again on the next thing, then you, it's still worth that investment of time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's amazing that that philosophy of, well, everyone invests 5% into it because it's going to benefit the entire business long term isn't a common. I mean, it's more common now for sure, um, but it, it certainly wasn't 10 years ago. You mentioned Rhino and and other tools. Can you just kind of round out the other kinds of things that you guys are tracking? Maybe there's even stuff beyond software. Are you tracking hardware and, and things like that? Yeah, so so with the hardware side of things, and I guess I've touched on this a little bit with understanding Revit crashing. Um, so where we we run what's called metric beat, which is one of the beats, um, and that tracks what the computer's doing. So we know what the CPU is doing, what the memory of the machine's doing. Um, so with with Revit as an example, if Revit crashes, the key things that we can pull out is um, yeah, memory utilization, CPU utilization, how long Revit had been open for, how many sessions of Revit were open, how long the machine's been open for. So in terms of hardware performance, we're 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 able to say, okay, rather than rather than have this three year cycle of of buying hardware, buy hardware when you need to buy hardware, and buy hardware for the people that need it. So 
we've, we can set up alerts in BIMBeats so that if certain actions get performed, you can find out instantly when those things happen. So as an example, when I first joined BIMBeats, I was given a laptop that had 16 gig of RAM on it. And my machine kept crashing when I was running Power BI and Revit at the same time. So I set up an alert to ping Adam every time my memory utilization went over 90%, that he would get an instant message saying Matt's machine is, is not performing. Is <laughs> so, you know, once he'd been pinged 10 times within a, a week, okay. he was like, okay, right, okay. Yeah. here's 32 gig of RAM coming your way. So in terms of hardware, I guess you, you can scale that across an entire organization and work out, okay, who needs 64 gig, who needs 32 gig of RAM as a very simple metric but in terms and theoretically of you could track the time that the machine the time between it crashed and when it was started again right so you can actually see how much downtime there is absolutely and you can put numbers to that right because if you could invest a little bit more in a new laptop i mean that number is insignificant to the amount of time wasted waiting for a machine to reboot let's just say it's two thousand dollars for a laptop two thousand dollars is probably 10 hours worth of time roughly right so you get 20 crashes, once at, one every other week, you've paid for your laptop without all of the additional performance benefit you're going to have from having a better computer. But you've got, again, you've got the evidence there to prove, well, why do we want to buy this? And, and, the, and it works the other way. It's like, well, okay, the three-year cycle's up, but hey, we're performing okay. We're not getting regular crashes. No one's complaining, but the system's working really well. We buy hardware when we need to buy hardware, not on a three-year life cycle anymore. We buy it when we need to buy it. Um, but in terms of monitoring Revit crashes, because BIMBeats can capture all of that data when an error occurs, we're actually capturing all of that as a ticket without any manual intervention. So when Revit crashes, like typical you know, organizations will be, oh, you need to write a support ticket. You need to say what you were doing, what file you were in, what you were doing before the crash. You need to cetera, spend more time, you know, and you can't do that when the machine's crashed, right? Because the computer's yeah. off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So in terms of the loss of productivity for the fact that your machine has crashed, you've got to go in and redo all the things you did before you last synced, et cetera, et cetera. You've now got to write a ticket. And we were finding at BVN that 10% of people were actually writing the ticket, which wasn't useful, but you can kind of understand you've just crashed out. You want to get back in again. You don't want to write the ticket. But that writing of the ticket gets automatically captured by BIMBeats. So we have a record of every single Revit crash from every single user and what the machine was doing and what the user was doing just prior to the crash. So that manual effort of writing the ticket has just gone away. So then you can start investigating the ones that you want to investigate. Is it the same project that gets most of the crashes? Is it the same user? Is it the same infrastructure? So all of that trending data, which is really useful, if you did have everyone writing the ticket, you now have captured that automatically. So from a hardware perspective, I guess that's one of the, the biggest things that BIMBeats does. We, we, because we're tracking everything that's happening on the machine, simple things just like license management. So we talked about SketchUp earlier and the move away from SketchUp. When we were at BVN, they sent out a survey to say who uses SketchUp. We're looking at removing some of the licenses. And it came back with 35 replies. I regularly use SketchUp. Do not get rid of SketchUp. Like SketchUp's my favorite I've tool. I've lived this. Please do not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. And this, this, is a common, this is a common story. It turns out there's 10 people, yeah, not 35. Six. Six. Yeah, it, as soon as you ask the question, of course I use it. I use it all the time. It, it, exactly. Right. But then we, but we used BIMBeats to just say, well, okay, we understand what processes are running on the machine. And there was never more than six concurrent license usage of SketchUp, and we were paying for 35. And this was before SketchUp went to named user licenses, though. So Yeah. 
<laughs> so, but 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 that's across every every um, piece of software. So, and it's not CAD and BIM related. It could be anything. It could be your Adobe suite. It could be okay. Are you paying for the Creative Cloud suite for every employee that you have? When ninety percent of them are using an Acrobat Reader, which is right. free, right? <laughs> it's like Absolutely, that yes. type of thing. Which no, but again, I have like, to have photo. It just makes me feel good to have Photoshop on my machine. Right? Exactly. The fact that you've only used it once in the last year, and it's cost the business two hundred bucks to do that, and there's two hundred people in this business, two hundred times two hundred. Yeah, you know, it's. Yeah, I'm. I'm coming at this from a very cynical standpoint, but it's. It. It totally links to the health of the business, and these things are. People are spending, companies are spending substantial money on licenses for these pieces of software. And if you're paying for a hundred licenses of the Adobe suite at some level that includes Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign and Premiere and all, and, and somebody's using Acrobat, like these are substantial dollars that can be put into a better place in the business than being spent on that. Absolutely. And I, th- I think what you touched on there that I think is the biggest change for me with BIMBeats is if we use the term health, BIMBeats started out as being a model health tool. And it started out as being a, hey, we've got a heap of Dynamo scripts that are extracting the health of the model. Now, to me, the biggest benefit of BIMBeats is about the health of an organization and the health of people and the data we're capturing around organizational health and the health of individuals. Yes, we're capturing all of the model health stuff, which is great. But identifying, particularly going back to this um, post-COVID world, identifying an individual that is working from home three or four days a week and doing 50, 60 hours a week every week and being able to identify that and give an opportunity to reduce that time by upskilling that individual and knowing that it's not just one or two people within an organization, that it's a high percentage of people that are spending longer doing things that, than they need to, how would you ever know when these people are working from home, how frequently they're working and what they're doing and how you can improve their lives? Like for me, that in the last year alone, that for me has been the biggest, I've felt the, the proudest about Bim Beats around that wellness piece. Like this isn't wellness around let's get someone in and we do some yoga and give you some apples and some water. This is no, no, we're looking at how many hours you're working and we're trying to identify ways to reduce the amount of time you're working and allowing getting the computer to do a lot of that work so that you can free up your time to do the things you want to do. Yeah, and it's, not, it's that, not just one way. It's not just the company getting a better employee. It's the employee feeling like the company is invested in them and their health. And that, like, if there's a, a retention strategy out there, <laughs> this has to be one of the best. Absolutely. And it's it's not one of these things where you go, well, okay, only one party wins out of this. Everybody wins from it. It's like if you're reducing the amount of hours people are working and you're increasing your productivity and your output, there is no loser. However, it can only happen with that cultural piece and the change management piece and a organization that supports people and supports the delivery of the product, the, 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 the delivery of the project through understanding how people are delivering those projects and it's it's not yeah it's not that yes well we achieved the deadline we got it out the door at five o'clock let's all celebrate it's like well let's see if we can get out at lunchtime because we can and we've got the data to prove we can i'm gonna go back to my cynical nature but now now there's more hours (laughs) that those people can work this this again gets 
it gets back to that leadership having empathy for the people who are doing the work. It's not to say leadership's not doing the work, but the people who are delivering the projects and the tools that they're using and the hardware and the software that are included in that category of the tools that they're using. And, and just having the empathy for their lifestyle, for their balance, for their mental health, for all of those things to say, you know, we actually really care about you and we want to make sure that you're happy. And we, we've recognized that there are problems across the whole organization and we're looking to get rid of those problems and we're going to replace those problems in, in this case with automation or some tool to help. That, that to me is just a huge piece of this that cannot be understated. That empathy between the leadership and those who are delivering the projects also has to be there. It's like you can just show them the data. They actually have to act upon it. They have to come up with the strategies and the impl- implementation. Absolutely. But the, the key part is that that data isn't an opinion. It's, it's a fact. And it's not like, oh, I think this person is performing bad or I think this person is performing well or this person shouts the loudest so they get the biggest pay rise. This removes any bias to any of that because it's all based off of a metric. Like you can't question the metric. You can't say, well, you're telling me Revit's slow. You're telling me Revit's quick. You're telling me you're building these awesome families. You're like, it, the data's the data and I can just use that um, and then you then you bring in the empathetic piece, but yeah, that, the fact that you're removing bias really helps with all of these conversations because it doesn't become personal. It's it's a fact, and uh, you know that to me that to me is is what's really helped. Particularly before Bim Beats existed, I I used to be really opinionated around what I thought were the performance of individuals, but they that came across as arrogant. And it came across as, well, you don't have data to back this up. This is just your your feeling of what you think is happening within the business. And that's still good. I, I, I still think you need that, but you have the data to support that opinion. And it's not just, uh, well, if Matt says that this is what's happening, do we believe it or do we not believe it? Yes, he's probably got um, credibility behind the experience that he has within that thing to, to, to make it credible, but it's backing it up with data. And I, I had a really interesting conversation last week with a mate of mine in a completely different industry. Uh, so he's in the mining industry and he builds um, tools to analyze the financial performance of things within the mining industry. And he's like, I've been doing this for 20 years. I went to Harvard. I've been trained to do this. And last week I was in a meeting with this grad and this grad told me that he's got a better way of doing this thing. And I'm like, oh, do you realize who I am? And I said, mate, that's, that's great. And in all honesty, I'm, I'm, I'm sure your solution, you know, probably is better than his solution. But how do you know that? And why don't you test your way against his way in a tool? If you had a tool like Bim Beach, you could test both ways. And then it's not about your opinion or his opinion. It's about where you can put it into a system and then see what the results come out. And then, you know, if his way is quicker than yours, then you have metrics to, to back that up. Or equally, if you know, you can support your argument. But right now, you're just giving me evidence around why you think and you're better. And, and yes, there's, there's um, probably some validity in that. But until you put it into a system and you test it with a quantifiable metric, I'm not going to say his way is not as good as your way. Yeah. Your ego isn't data. I don't yeah. want to be buddies with you anymore. It's like, <laughs> I wanted you to support me saying that you knew my way was going to be better. I'm like, yeah, but you know, you, you put yourself in the position of that young grad who's come in and might have a better way of doing things and he's not going to get listened to because of some guy who's come in there with 20 years experience. I know better than you. 
It's like, let's put you on a level playing field, put you in a system and we'll test the system. <laughs> I've brought this up on previous podcasts. So uh, for the listener who who is actually listening, uh, forgive me, but there, there's this cultural, th- this thing that happens in Japanese meeting culture that I've heard about. Um, so I'm, I'm welcome to, if there's any updates or, or changes to the story, I, I would love to hear it. But the, the idea is that the when there's a meeting and there's all the different generations of people in the room, the youngest get to speak first. And the reason why is because if the older generations speak first, no one is going to give an alternate opinion. They're not going to give a, a different way, something with a, a different perspective or maybe a new way of doing it because you can't make the older generation look bad. You can't make the leadership. You can't put them in a position that makes it look like you know more than them or that they're wrong. So they don't, they actually, this from, from what my understanding is, is that the youngest get to talk first and express their ideas first. And that to me was super interesting because I, we don't see that happening very often. And I think a lot of times because the ego is not the data, but the ego wins a lot of the time because it's, it's the lizard brain part. It's, it's fight or flight. Like my survival depends on, on me knowing more and having this 20 years of experience and making sure that you know that. And I, I, we see that all the time. And, and I, I think that there's some, there is value in what you're saying, which is what, just test it, like be open to the possibility that somebody else does actually have a better way. Are we going to spend all of our time doing business, doing that? No, we're not right. There are best practices that we've established. And again, we have to at least have a forum that is safe for people to bring up new ideas or else new ideas will never come up. If it's not a safe place for somebody to throw that idea out, it's not going to happen. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think that's a great, I, I'd never heard of that, but it, again, it, to me, it makes perfect sense that, yeah, if you go into a room and someone's respected, uh, particularly in Asian culture, and they speak first, there's no way you're going to question what they've said or give a different difference of opinion. But it's kind of interesting when you, again, going back to Toyota, what Toyota said was that they didn't care whether you were the guy on the factory floor or the CEO or the lady that made the tea. If You, you find could stop problem, the line. Yep. You stop the line and we right. solve the problem when we move on. So I guess that similar thing in that it removes that ego or removes that tension around wanting to raise a problem because you're not the experienced person within the organization it's like well you know I'm, I'm on the factory floor here and i'm i'm seeing the same thing over and over and over again and i'm pretty sure we could do it better but having that culture that supports well we want to hear you we want you to raise your hand and say this is because it doesn't it, it doesn't happen in most organizations or you know when that person says it, well yeah you're the junior you're the junior we've done this 10 times we've done this for years we don't need to change the manufacturing line at Toyota, in contrast to like the GM manufacturing line, uh, there was a, I had a, a previous guest of the show, actually, Reg Prentice. He guest lectured in my emerging technology course, and he specifically spoke about the Toyota system, the, the just-in-time manufacturing and lean and Kanban and all of these these concepts. The antithesis of that was the GM factory line, which was there was guys drinking on the job. And they were putting their empty whiskey bottle in the door cavity of the car before putting on the the liner inside, right? And if if something broke, the next person had to deal with it. And guess what? They didn't deal with it if they didn't know how to deal with it. And so the problems just snowballed. Compounded. Yeah. yeah. And so 
how how does that system make any sense when you look at this other one? It's like, let's fix this right now because everybody else downstream depends on this. And our businesses are not very different from that, right? There's There are so many times where in a piece of software to deliver a project today, I take a shortcut because it's faster for me which you could track <laughs> the bim beats police can track this but 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 then somebody else has to deal with this later or we have to like like even if somebody else doesn't have to deal with it later i have to remember that i did it that way and and that is something that's really hard to measure yeah and you know it's it's a controversial topic but like masking regions and field regions are you know it, every organization has this thing around masking regions and field regions and my opinion in the early stages of project I'm okay with it because there's so much change that it hasn't got to a point where that design is is not fluid anymore and that you can turn that into construction dots. So I'm okay with that. Yeah. But but it's it's a hard thing to go, well, where is that line and where do you stop? Because if you put a mask in the region over a, a piece of model that you've modeled incorrectly and then you're relying on that model to go and build that thing and you've forgotten that you put the mask in the region over the top of it and then they go and set it out in the wrong place, like we come back to this compounding problem thing of it totally upends the idea of a coordinated set of drawings, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. Um, and and I, I guess masking regions. I, I don't actually think there's ever a reason to use a masking region, but field regions, like you know, the, when you cut a section from a model in the early stages, it doesn't look how you want it to look. And yes, I understand you kind of need to doctor it a little bit, but not to the point where it doesn't match the model. Like when it doesn't match the model well and the funny thing is you can't see through it to know if it matches so many times so you go through these extra steps to hide it right so that you can actually see what's going on or you have to you have to at least edit it so that you can see what's going on behind it and that's extra steps Uh, yeah you can you can see how how that compounds and i I had a conversation probably we're doing a month ago now with uh, one of our clients and they said look i want to understand how much of each of these drawings is 2D crap, as he said, versus the model. And I said, well, you know, Bimbeats records how much 2D content is in every view. So let's just concentrate on the 1 to 100 general arrangement plans. Let's not worry about the 1 to 5 details because there's going to be some 2D stuff on that. But if you're issuing construction documentation on a 1 to 100 GA plan and you've got 20% line work on that drawing, I'm, you know, we're concerned about that. So we went in and we, we, we ran this study of all of the GA plans and the percentage of 2D content compared to, you know, modeled work. And it was like, right, okay, whatever whatever value we're at now, we're going to benchmark where we're at now and we want to improve that. That's going to be our, our kind of philosophy moving forward around understanding we want to reduce whatever percentage it is now that ne- this time next year we'll come back and we want the average to be less and we want to get it down to a certain percentage. And I think with BIM Beats, that's one of the, the biggest benefits is it doesn't really matter where you are in the journey. You can benchmark where you're at now and say, well, what is the things that we yeah. want? You don't have to start at the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do we want to improve? What do we want to focus on? What are the key things to focus on? And carbon, like, because we, like we, we partner with Tally, um, so we can do all of the carbon off, um, calculations. But you could go, okay, what is our benchmark this year? And what is our typical commercial project and what are the materials we use and what is our carbon footprint? And what, what do we want it to be next year? And let's just benchmark where we're at now and, and work to improve that and continuously set a target to do that. But it, again, it doesn't matter where you're at right now because you can just put bin beats into your system, 
you benchmark where you're at now and you just come up with some targets, but it's measurable again. It's not like we're coming up with a target and not being able to quantify whether or not we're meeting what we thought we were going to meet or if we've exceeded what we've met. Are there any any things that people are, are asking to measure that you were never expecting? BIM 360 comes up a lot around licensing, managing licensing within BIM 360. Because it's a nightmare, right? <laughs> because it's obviously a challenge. I would right. say a challenge. Um, so we, we, we capture a lot of information around the admin portal of BIM 360 when people are ad, uh, added and removed and when projects are created and removed. So that helps because, again, yeah, a lot of organizations are struggling with understanding their, their license usage within BIM 360. That one comes up quite regularly. Other than that, it's just always, oh, can you do this piece of software or this piece of software or this piece of software? And it's like, well, we already capture Rhino, Grasshopper, Revit, Dynamo, all of the CAD verticals. What else do we capture? Like we're expanding that quite broadly, but every organization will say, oh, well, can you include this piece of software and this piece of software? What about things that are native to the web that are running in a, a browser tab? Ah, now this is interesting. So we we have a tool called Active Window. And what Active Window does within BIMBeats is it takes a snip of your screen every minute and it will record what the title is of the thing you're working on. So if you're in Revit and you're in a view and whatever that view name is, it will say, Matt was in GA plan level one this minute and then the same thing the next minute, the same thing. So it'll give you a total of the amount of time you spent in anything within Revit or Rhino or whatever, but it will also pre, um, capture what you're doing in web-based applications. So if you're in, say, Lucid Chart and you're doing some workflow diagram, it does the same thing. It'll say Lucid Workflow and then the title of what you're in. So we're capturing what's um, how people are using web applications using that tool called Active Window. So as well as doing the processes that are running on the machine natively, we're capturing web-based applications by just doing that snip of the screen every minute to then get a total and the reason that we did that primarily was um, again from a licensing point of view of web-based applications to track licensing but also validation of timesheets so i i use active window at the end of every week i go what did i actually spend my time on this week not my fictitious 40 hours (laughs) and you know you don't you don't have to make it up Exactly. I yeah. still make it up because I still have to go, well, okay, I'm going to put 40 hours down and which clients are paying with, you know, the same thing we all do. But at least I have an understanding, well, what did I actually do? And, um, and yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever be in a position where we actually bill for the work we actually did. <laughs> um, that, would be, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? But at least I know, at least I know like the actual time I've spent. Um, you know, and I'm probably one of the biggest offenders in, or Conrad, Adam and I are. We don't do 40 hours a week, even though we're building tools to encourage people to do 40 hours a week. Like we need to practice a little bit more of what we preach around, you know, creating automation routines and not going, well, we've just automated that thing. What can we automate next and save even more time? It's like, yeah, we don't say, well, we've just done that thing. We can do a 36 hour week this week instead of 40. We just go, well, we've now got four hours to do something else. And I guess that comes back to your earlier point. But when you automate these things, you've got to be careful that you don't continuously still burn people out by just saying well you can now do a lot more than you, you can do more do. that's not the promise of computers <laughs> exactly and it's, it's i mean it's uh, it's been a while since i've worked on project delivery but no matter how much time you're given you work till the minute before you get to deliver that thing you never ever say well we've finished we'll issue it a day early it's well we've got another day to tweak this thing yeah. and we can more time equals more this. options yeah right exactly 
I know somebody. I know I know a couple people who would push back on that, who are very good about about when it's done, it's done. And then that time that I saved, that's my time. And they're very impressive people. <laughs> I need I need I need to talk to those people. Yeah. All right. I'll I'll set up a I'll set up a meeting. Well, Matt, this has been fantastic. Is there anything that we missed that you feel like should still be covered? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, we, we obviously have spoken um, about privacy and the data that we capture, and obviously we're very sensitive around that. Um, I mean, we, don't, we, we probably don't need to go into too much detail other than, you know, we don't capture anything sensitive about individuals. Everything that we do has is approved, and from a European standpoint, we're GDPR compliant. Like, we, we don't capture personal data. It's just enough data to be able to do you know what we're trying to do and again i think just reiterating the point that bimbeats is is a tool to improve people's lives not pick up on people that do bad things like it's I th- I, we've got we've got one example one ex- example of all of our clients that used it to fire someone because they were working on private work in work time and it's like well that's fine like that i'm, I'm okay with that um, because if you consider the scenario where that company didn't have been beats, they've got to go through this whole rigmarole of trying to prove that that happened. Then you've got to bring HR in. Then you've probably got performance management and all of the stuff that surrounds that. Whereas in this instance, they were like, "Well, you've just we've just seen you've just spent six hours today working on myhouse.rvt, <laughs> and you've booked eight hours of time to this project." Right. Like so. There's no argument here. Unfortunately, there's there's not a position for you here. But that's such a rare thing. Like in all of the examples, and particularly when I'm working directly with the clients, it's identifying opportunities to improve people's lives and support learning and development. It, it's not about big brother to go in and, and yeah, reprimand people that are doing the wrong thing. And and again, it comes back to the comment earlier that you know most people have not been trained how to do things the most efficient way because there's five things to do and those ways those change over time right they there's the old the 10 year old way is maybe not the, still the best way right exactly and you know going back to the rhino scenario like i i think rhino is a really great tool for conceptual modeling but it can't produce documentation so at some point you've got to go well we need to put it into a tool to produce documentation so right now that for me is a really challenging space because i love the modeling tools within rhino but trying to produce drawings out of Rhino, like that's, yeah. And again, my, you know, that was where Revit came along and Revit was a great modeling tool and not a great documentation tool. And as you said earlier, people were pushing it back into CAD back then. And now it's a good documentation tool and possibly not as good a modeling tool as some of the newer modeling tools. And then obviously we've got new new tools coming out with um, Paul O'Carroll working on um, Arcol and Snaptrude and all of these new tools, which I think are awesome and I can't wait for those tools to come out and initiatives like high power and test fit like for me it's super super exciting um but one thing i kind of try and always bring myself back to remind myself on is that i at built north america i went to watch ian keogh's talk on on high power and i kind of looked across the room and i'm like this is so foreign to people like what you're trying to do is just like these people are still trying to think what not these people, but generally people are still trying to understand how to build a Revit family. And now this whole new approach to collaborative, proper, true collaborative design, I think, like, I love it. And I, I hope it does kick off. But I think the time frame for when it becomes the norm, 
I think possibly both of us might be retired by then. <laughs> this is when we get to say, not my problem. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Which is what we've just said we shouldn't be doing. With right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. It all what goes around comes around. Well, Matt, this has been fantastic. And if people want to see what BIM Beats looks like, I think that's there there is kind of a, a UI aspect and what does that information actually look like? I just want to send them to your website. I don't want to try to explain oh, yeah, what that- it looks like because I think that's that's gonna be a fool's errand. Yeah, exactly. Like obviously we've been talking about it, but to see it and see it live is something else like you know, we can talk a good game on a, on a podcast about what it does. But yeah, please reach out to us and we'll, we'll show you exactly how it works in real time on your data. Um, and then you can, yeah, you can see how it actually works with, with your own data. Great. Thanks for taking the time. This has been a great conversation. I know it's been a lot about BIM Beats, but it, there's so many other things that we talked about in this conversation that are just germane to change in the industry and beyond technology, right? We talked a lot about empathy we talked a lot about behavior we talked a lot about operations and and all of these things are hugely parallel mountains that need to be climbed at the same time by lots of people in the organization to make these not just digital transformation happen right but business transformation happen and and i love what you said about the the health bim beats is really about the health of the business beyond just the health of the model, right? But the health of the business includes the health of the people as well. And and that was, I think that these are some bigger stories that are gems in this conversation that a lot of people need to hear. So thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks, Evan. It's been big fun. Cheers. Thank you to Avail for their support of this podcast episode. Visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today. This show is part of the Gabled Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gabledmedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for eTroxel. Talk to you soon.